from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Mona Mahmoudi. Mona grew up as a Baha'i in Iran. She left Iran to go to university before the Iranian Revolution broke out in 1979. Unfortunately, her parents were swept up in the revolution. Mona's father was a member of the first Baha'i National Spiritual Assembly after the revolution. One day in August of 1980, all members of the assembly just disappeared, never to be heard from again. Immediately, a second assembly was formed. Mona's mother was a member of this subsequent assembly. That assembly was arrested a year and a half later. The whole assembly was executed soon after the arrest. So Mona lost both her parents within three years of the revolution. A third assembly was put in place, and all members of that body were subsequently executed. Mona also had a cousin who was a member of the Baha'i local spiritual assembly of Tehran at approximately the same time. She was also arrested and killed. Since the third Baha'i National Assembly, there has been no Baha'i administration allowed by the authorities. During the interview, we discussed the current movement, Education Under Fire, protesting the Iranian government's disbanding of the Baha'i Institute for Higher Education in Iran. Mona has contributed to BIHE as an instructor. I started the interview by asking Mona to describe what was it like growing up in Iran. Well, I was born in Tehran, Iran. Uh, I grew up, actually, in Tehran, Iran. I went through school, you know, uh, in Iran, uh, in Tehran. I finished my high school in Tehran, then came to the United States. Growing up in Iran was really good. I really enjoyed my childhood and my teenage years. Uh, we had a very interesting life in Iran. Both of my parents, of course, were very, very busy with, with outside work, but also they spent quite a bit of time with us. Both of them, because of their professions, they always had wonderful stories to tell us when they would come home. I have a brother and a sister, and we, the three of us, you know, were very happy, very, very nice and happy childhood, and a very nice and loving home. Were your parents Baha'is? Yes, both of my parents uh, were Baha'is, so we were raised in a Baha'i atmosphere. I think that the fact that both of my parents were really very much involved in the Baha'i community activities, and also on top of that, they were genuinely in love with the faith. It was just, just everything was about the faith. Their day-to-day, you know, events of their lives, and they would always, they talked about those events, they would relate it to the teaching of the faith. You know, that's the way they actually, they taught us, me and my sister and my brother. Uh, so they were both Baha'is, yes. It wasn't only by name, it was really also the way they acted. Every day, they just lived it. The atmosphere in the house was permeated by Baha'i things. Iran is noted for its persecution of the Baha'is. Did you yes. experience that growing up? 
You know, I grew up in the 60s and early, actually late 60s and early 70s in Iran. You know, it was interesting timing at that time. At that time, of course, the Shah was in power. We did not feel a lot of that. We would hear once in a while that in this village or that village, homes were being burned or people were being pushed out of their homes. The Baha'i fireside in Tehran, I know that it was well known that sometime or very often, Muslims would pretend that they are interested to find out about the faith, to investigate the faith. They would be coming in and they would try to disturb the meetings. So that's extent of persecution, but I don't know if you can call that persecution. It was unease. And as far as personally concerned, the, the, the worst things that I remember, which was odd for, for a young girl in my school, whether it was in secondary school or, or in high school, because my father was a very well-known personality, television personality in Iran, and once my friends or my teacher would find out who I was, who my father was, they would always express uh, astonishment, saying that, well, but Mr. Mahmoudi is such a wonderful guy. How could he be a Baha'i? So that was the extent of prejudice that I personally had, had, uh, had encountered in Iran growing up, but not more than that. You mentioned firesides. Can you describe to folks who aren't familiar what, what you mean by firesides? Yeah, these are meetings where uh, people who would want to investigate about the Baha'i faith would actually come to find out about the Baha'i faith. Uh, they would normally take place in, in somebody's home. In Iran, there used to be a speaker who would be giving presentations about the faith, and there would be a time where questions and answers will take place. And these meetings could be very small, as, as small as several people to maybe 50, 60 folks. So that's, I guess we call them uh, investigation meetings, but here I guess in the United States we call them firesides, where you come and uh, find out about the Baha'i faith. What were your interests growing up? Both me and my sister, most, most of the interests that we had, of course we were going to school ac- academically. I had taken ballet classes for about nine years, and I was playing the piano. So I loved the music and dancing, ballet specifically. Uh, My sister was interested in in painting, so she became an artist. You said you left Iran after finishing high school? Yes, both me and my sister. My parents wanted us to basically leave Iran and come to the United States to to study, to go to university and, and finish our education here. We left Iran because of that. But we never went back because the revolution of 1979 took place and it was not a good thing to go back. Where did you go to school and what did you study? When I came to the United States, I studied mathematics. So I'm a mathematician by training. I went to Wellesley College in Massachusetts, did my bachelor's at Wellesley College. I did my master's in Boston University and then I did my Ph.D. work in mathematics at UCLA in Los Angeles. And the Iranian revolution occurred during the time you were going to school? Uh, That's correct. In fact, it coincided, interestingly enough, with the beginning of me writing my PhD dissertation. So I started my dissertation in 1979, towards the end of 1979, and that's when the revolution happened. And and I never finished my dissertation. I did all my work, but I did not finish my uh, mathematics PhD dissertation. Because the situation was so disturbing? Right, because of the situation in Iran. Basically, the situation of the Baha'is in Iran 
you can understand totally overwhelmed everything else. Everything was put on the back burner. It just totally overwhelmed my life. My son was just born at that time. Between my son and the revolution in Iran, I had no other thoughts. I could not handle writing it, mathematics dissertation, PhD dissertations. So was your father immediately impacted by the 79 revolution? Yes. My father at that point, Hushang Mahmoudi, he was a member of the National Assembly of Iran. These days we say that was the first National Assembly, which means that that was the current National Assembly when the revolution happened. Uh, yes, he was impacted in August of 1980. My father, along with the eight other members of the National Assembly and two auxiliary board members, they were arrested, in fact, and simply disappeared during a meeting of the National Assembly. So we never found out when they died, how they were killed. They just simply disappeared. You basically had to deal with this in the United States. Yes, I was in the United States. I was lucky to be here. It was a tough period of time because of the uncertainty. Uh, of course, I think in a way it was tougher for us than it was for my mom because my mother was, of course, at that time in Iran. She became a member of the following National Spiritual Assembly. So we were in touch with her on a weekly basis, trying to find out what happened to them, to, to my dad and to the rest of the membership of the National Assembly. And they were trying to find out, to figure out what happened. They really went after them, uh, my, my mom and, and, of course, the National Assembly of Iran. But they basically hit, hit the wall. Every time they tried to find out, to figure out what happened to them, nobody would speak. What happened the day that they disappeared? At the day that they disappeared, they were holding a meeting of the National Assembly. So there were all the nine members of the National Assembly of Iran, plus two auxiliary board members, were present at the meeting. When I think the Revolutionary Guards, whoever arrested them, they just come in and, and arrest all of them and take them away. So it was during a meeting, yes. It mm -hmm. was a, during a, a meeting of the National Assembly right. where the arrests took place. And you and your mother never heard from your father again? They mm. basically just vanished. Mm. No trace of them. No mm. trace of them was left. I'm sure that at some point there will be some evidence what happened to them and how they were killed. Mm. But at this point, I, have, I don't have any information, any valid information, any authentic information. And what was the government response to your inquiries? Well, the government response to the inquiries that the Baha'is made, basically they said what, who, where. Mm -hmm. They totally pretended that nothing had happened. They never admitted that, uh, that they had taken them. So then your mother ended up being elected on the National Spiritual Assembly. Is that how that worked? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So my mother was elected to the na next National, Assembly, National Spiritual Assembly. And the assembly that my mother was a member of, which we now call Second National Assembly, they worked for about a year, year and a, year and a half, and then they were arrested in December of 1981 and put into Evan Prison and then executed exactly two weeks later on December 27th of 1980. And what were the charges placed upon them? Well, the charges were, were the customary ridiculous charges of spying for Israel or belonging to the Baha'i faith, mm -hmm. which they call us being a member of this infidel group of people, or Zionism, or being uh, working for the 
CIA or Israeli government or that kind of ridiculous charges that they would uh, levy against the Baha'is, that they have been levying against the Baha'is for many years now. But there were really no formal charges brought up. It's just that these ridiculous charges were printed in newspapers in Iran, and they still use those uh, ridiculous charges, but I don't think anybody really buys that. They don't hold water anymore. Mm-hmm. People have become a lot more sophisticated in the past 30, 35 years. Now, were you able to have any communication at all with your mother for those two weeks? No. Oh, no. No. Yeah. I had talked to her the, the week before she was arrested, mm-hmm. and that was it. And nothing for two weeks, and then we got the news, we got the word that they were actually executed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when they were executed, none of the family members were notified, and their bodies were discovered accidentally. In fact, uh, their bodies was buried unceremoniously in shallow graves. I know that some of the clothing that, that my mom was wearing actually showed up from underneath the dust, and so the Baha'i youth would go and dig a little bit deeper and then bury their, their bodies a little bit deeper. Yeah. No, it, it, was, it, was, it was a horrible time. It was a terrible time. Yeah. Did you have any other family members that were impacted? Uh, yes, actually. My first cousin, uh, she was 36 years old. She was a member of the local assembly of, Te- of Tehran. Her name was Shiva. Shiva was a member of the local assembly of Tehran. She was actually executed exactly a week after my mom was executed. She, along with uh, several other members of the local assembly of Tehran, were arrested before my mom's arrest. They were arrested early December of 1981 and kept in prison for, I think, about six weeks, five to six weeks, and then they were executed. Uh, So as far as family members are concerned, yes, my dad, my mom, and my cousin. Of course, they were individually impacted, but the rest of the family obviously impacted in, uh, in different ways. Uh, one interesting thing is that my mother, she was an auxiliary board member, and my dad was a member of the National Assembly. And because of the circumstances, special circumstances of Iran at that time, the Universal House of Justice had asked that two or three of the auxiliary board members would be present at the meetings of the National Spiritual Assembly. And so my mom was normally present when the National Assembly of Iran met during the time that my dad was a member. and. Uh, we're talking about the First National Assembly. And the day that my dad and everybody else was were arrested and disappeared, which was in August of 1980, my mom just happened not to be in that meeting. Uh, so she basically was spared at that time. Then, I guess a few hours later, she took up her pen and wrote this most incredible letter to the Universal House of Justice describing these 11 people who were arrested and the, the spiritual transformation that had taken place in each one of them as a result of the persecutions, and just an incredibly his, historic letter, I think, of a lot of historic interest to the Baha'is, who would probably want to later on in the future study the administrative order of the faith and see how these national assemblies actually developed and evolved spiritually. So after the Second National Spiritual Assembly was arrested and put to death, what happened after that for the national body? The Third National Assembly also came into operation. I mean, they started working right away. And I just wanted to make a comment. Because of the circumstances, the way the election of the National Assembly happened was that the House of Justice had asked 
instead of electing nine people for the National Assembly, I think maybe a series of four times nine or five times nine people were elected. And then the highest number, I mean, the, the first nine became the members of the first National Assembly, and when they were taken, then the next nine came in. So right after the arrest or execution or disappearance of the National Assembly, the next National Assembly basically right away within 24 hours started working. The third National Assembly after the execution of the second National Assembly, they started working right away. Every single member of that National Assembly also was executed. But they were not arrested as a body because at that time they were not meeting as a group of nine people. They were meeting as a group of three people, I think. So they were arrested individually or in, in groups of less than nine. But eventually, in a matter of several months, all of them were arrested and all of them were executed. And what year was that? We're talking about ni- 1982-83 time frame. So they were in operation again for about another year another and a half? Another year, year and a half, yes. And then what happened after that? After that, basically, the government of Iran said no more Baha'i administration in Iran, no more National Spiritual Assembly. So then, basically, the, it, the whole Baha'i administration in Iran was banned. Since we are obedient to the government, we, we basically did not have any, any more election. So we're talking about 1980s, early 1980s, so how many years, whatever that is. There, there's really no administration. There's no Baha'i election in Iran anymore. Uh, the group of people that you call Yaran, the five of them who are arrested and have been in prison for, for over 10,000 days now, they basically, you call them Yaran, or, which literally means friends. They don't have the, the appellation, the National Assembly or anything like that. So then, of course, the organization of the faith continued, but then they were not called local assemblies or national assemblies. It took the form of other kinds of institutions and groups and committees. How was it that the Yaren was formed? I think it sort of organically grew because there were people who actually had to, to attend to the needs of the community. As you said, they've been in prison now for 10,000 days. Over 10,000 days, mm-hmm. yes. So this must have been a very devastating time for you, first your father and then your mother. Yes, you know, there were killed. very difficult times. But, you know, they really prepared for us for that. Uh, I consider myself actually very lucky because I had the option, I had the privilege of being able to talk about these atrocities and what had happened to the Baha'is in Iran and, and the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran here in the United States. In fact, for a good part of the 1980s, I had a lot of opportunities to talk about uh, what was happening in Iran and, and the persecution of the Baha'is. So that really helped me psychologically and emotionally to talk about these events. Uh, but I think more importantly, uh, my parents had had prepared us for that. They knew what was going to happen to them. The letters that, that both of them wrote, especially my mom, basically these letters were just such incredible letters saying that what they're doing, why they're doing it, how this will cause the faith of Baha'u'llah to grow and the unity of humanity be established and how good it is for, for the country you know, to go through this turmoil it was a cleansing thing for the community, for the Iranian community, for everything. And, of course, as far as sacrifice is concerned, 
you know, they thought they were really privileged to be able to do this. So they prepared us and they said, don't be, don't be upset for us. Just be happy for us. In fact, some of the letters that my mother wrote, she expressed her own desire and her own readiness and her own feelings about the events and how happy she was. And she, you know, she would say that she has never been more fulfilled in her life than she is now because her life had found such an incredible purpose. My dad did the same things. Of course, they did the best they could to, to preserve themselves. They did love life. They didn't want to die. But when it came to that recantation, recanting your faith, basically stood very firm. In a way, it was, it was devastating. And it is. It still is, really, to be honest with you, Warren. It's just right underneath the skin. The grief is, is still there. But you just go on. You realize that there was a purpose to it. You're happy for them. Did you say you had heard from your mother when she was in prison or not? No, no, No. never heard from her. Never heard from her. The only thing that came out in some of the um, non-Baha'i media, Mm -hmm. there was a book that was written 10, 12, 13 years ago by a a political prisoner, a, a female political prisoner who came out of the Evan prison. Evan prison is a notorious prison in Tehran. This lady who was a young political prisoner, basically, in a footnote, in a, in a book that she published about her experience in prison, talks about my mother. This was by, totally by coincidence, and that a, a friend of mine found out and then sent it to me. And in this footnote, she says that one day they brought this lady to the prison, and her name was Jinus Mahmoudi. She was in her early 40s, or 42, she said. Actually, my mother was 52 at that time. This lady said that my mom was 42 and that they really loved her very much. She was this incredible being and that she kept on telling these young political prisoner, female, that were in her cell that you guys should be sitting in, you know, behind desks in universities and you should not be in jail and that she had prepared to start teaching them physics in prison to, to spend their time because my mom was a physicist. Mm. One day they call her name and she goes and she never comes back. And that's a, uh, a jacket that she had had as a souvenir. They take that jacket and they cut it up to the number of the prisoners in the cell and each one of them take a piece of it as a souvenir. That's the only thing, the news that you know, I heard from my mom from inside the prison but then I started thinking, oh, my God, you know, she must have looked so good. She looked at least 10 years younger than she was in the prison. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and uh, she had so much spirit going with her at that time that she actually wanted to teach them physics in, in jail. Did you ever write your story about your mom and dad? There were, of course, some articles and things like mm-hmm. that. About 10 years ago, I started pulling together some of the letters, actually a lot of the letters that my mom and my dad had written, and some of their diaries, which they took during the revolution day by day, and the events of the day, they told the events of the day, a lady who was willing to help me edit it and pulled the whole thing together, and I did that in Persian. It is not the story of their lives. It's a very, very short biography on both of them, and then their writings, which, of course, is a history of these years, the early years of the revolution, and what had happened to the Baha'i community in Iran. And I personally believe that it has a lot of 
value, both historical and sociological, and also as far as the evolution of the Baha'i faith is concerned. It was published, but still hasn't, has not been distributed. It must have taken a while for you to recover from such a traumatic event. Yeah, you know, I think you never really recover from it. Yeah, uh, that's in true. In that sense, you start putting things in perspective more, of course. There are always those moments of, right. of absolute grief and devastation. It's really, as I said, it's really underneath the skin. But on the other hand, I'm very happy for them that their lives mm. were so meaningful and they served so much and they did the best they could. And, you know, they served the faith in so many different ways. You know, of course, before the revolution... Uh, they did a lot of teaching of the faith. They, you know, they were, both of them were extremely active in the Baha'i community. My dad wrote books and they gave lectures. They had firesides and meetings and they were members of the assemblies and committees. The youth in Iran, they just loved both of them. They had made such an impact in so many lives, not only the Baha'is, but also the non-Baha'i lives. They had very rich life and it's astounding to me what really said. I am older than my mom and dad were when they were executed. My dad was 53 years old at the time of his execution, and my mom was 52 years old. They had accomplished so much by that early age, early stage of their lives, knowing full well that it was very, very difficult in Iran for a female to really grow and develop and get to places, to higher places. Uh, I really have become more and more in awe of my parents, especially my, of my mom, because I realized that how difficult it is for females to progress against all odds. Yeah, I mean, after the revolution, women, their status just completely changed overnight. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Their status changed, but I think it has helped them grow and become stronger. You may know that the number of Females going to universities in Iran is a lot higher than the males. You know, things are changing in that country. I think the suffering is necessary for growth and development. After being a mom and trying to deal with this tragedy, Mm -hmm. did you finish your schooling or did you go to work? Of course, I had finished my master's. And, you know, after my master's degree in mathematics, I was from Boston University, I worked on my PhD, towards my PhD in math, in pure mathematics for three years at UCLA. And that, as I mentioned before, I started my dissertation, but I never finished it. But after my son was three years old, I started teaching, lecturing mathematics. Yes, I started working. In fact, my first teaching job was was in Boston, uh, University of Massachusetts in, in Boston. Later on, I moved on and started getting uh, interested in information security and cryptography. Then I became a information security expert or a professional, however you want to call that. Uh, so I've been working for the past 15, 20 years in that area. So at this point in your life, is there some project that you would like to do that maybe you haven't had a chance to do for one reason or another that you might... Yeah, you know, Warren, that's interesting because, you know, I just moved to Washington, D.C. from Phoenix, Arizona about eight months ago. One thing that I always was interested in was the use of media in promoting the faith. And, you know, my, my dad was a very popular and the most respected and trusted television personality in Iran. I grew up in that area, in that atmosphere. 
television, radio, etc. In the past 15, 20 years, I've been doing very technical work, mathematics, teaching mathematics and cryptography and doing information security. But media has always been in the back of my head, always. I've always had an affinity for it. The project that I always wanted to do, and I'm very interested, especially now that I'm in Washington, D.C., is using the media to promote and to push forward the emancipation of Baha'is in Iran. It's not a project, but it's a desire. I just like to support that. Since I have come to Washington, D.C., I've gotten involved in, with people who are actually in, in the Persian media specifically, and they have opportunities to talk about what's happening to the Iranian Baha'is in general human rights issues in Iran. I don't have any technical desire anymore. I don't really want to do technical stuff anymore. I believe there is a, is it a radio project in Washington, D.C.? Actually, there's an organization called BIRS, Baha'i International Radio Services, and it has a radio program and it also has a television program. But they're in the, in the process of changing its direction and making it uh, more useful, more, more effective for the audience in Iran. And this, is, of course, is made for the non-Baha'i audience in Iran. It's been broadcast, the radio and the television, into Iran in Persian to the non-Baha'i audience. That's a target audience, yes. And it's successful, but they're trying to, to, to make it more efficient and more successful. And, of course, we first have to define what it means to be successful. Uh, because the faith actually has come out of obscurity, and a lot of the people in Iran whom 30 years ago they really um, were afraid of the word Baha'i now are very curious about the teachings of the faith, and they embrace it, and they want to know more about it. So these programs, both radio and television, now are helping awareness and the consciousness of the Iranians about the teachings of the faith, and uh, more importantly, the way they're being programmed and broadcast into Iran, the audience, the target audience is realizing that this is exactly what Iran needs. Of course, they're seeing it in the context of Iran, but of course the entire world needs. But they are realizing that the faith of Baha'u'llah and its teachings, specifically, obviously, is what Iran needs as a society to move forward. In that respect, just recently there was a movie that was made by a non-Baha'i Iranian I don't know if you heard about it, called Iranian Taboo, that has been aired about the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. So the non-Baha'i intellectuals and open-minded, educated Iranians have now started talking about why are we persecuting this particular religious group. Mm-hmm. And I think the Radio Baha'i and also the Baha'i TV have had uh, a hand in that you know, we have come a long way, Warren, since 30 years ago when the revolution started. I think we're coming to a point where uh, things are going to come together and we're going to see the result of all of that suffering and the persecutions. When I talk about suffering and the persecutions, it's really a day-to-day happening in Iran, uh, but it has opened doors for recognition of the principles of the Baha'i faith. I'm sure you've heard about the fact that the children and young people in Iran, if they're Baha'is, they cannot go to school, especially university. So they actually established this, I want to say, quote-unquote, underground Baha'i university. 
So it's called Baha'i Institute of Higher Education, or B-I-H-E. It was a network of students and professors uh, that grew organically to address the educational needs of the Baha'i youth in Iran. The exciting news is that that has been, of course, going on since, 19, let's say, 1990. It's been about quite 20-some-odd years. They have really gotten organized, and every time they got organized, the government came and they confiscated the properties or the books and the computers. They arrested the students and the professors, and we still have many Baha'i professors and the students in Iran in jail right now because they want to get educated. What I want to say is that it's an exciting time in terms of talking about the, uh, the teachings of the faith in the open in Iran. It's also uh, amazing that in a country, anywhere in the, on this planet, people can get arrested if they want to go to school. As a human rights issue, it's the right of a human being to get educated. I think we need to talk about it. We need to campaign for it. And, and I'm getting really excited about all the stuff that's going on online and everywhere, uh, people trying to help out and, and talk about the right to education as a human rights issue. Things are changing. The form of persecution is changing in Iran. Everything that used to be against the Baha'is as far as education, as far as getting arrested and put in jail and executed and properties confiscated, all of that continues on top of that now is education, the right of education that has been taken away. I was just thinking as you were talking about this, all this, and there is a lot of attention to this issue about Baha'i youth not being able to get an education because they're Baha'is in Iran. Right. And, and yeah. the whole effort on this project called Education Under Fire. That's correct. And yeah. all of the attention. I can only imagine that the young people in Iran must be exposed to all of this awareness going on outside of Iran because of the Internet. I, do you think that they oh, are completely excluded, or do they, they know no, what's no, going no, on outside they're, of they're, Iran? They're very sophisticated. They really have access to everything that we have access to. You mm. know, They're definitely, they're, they know what's going on. And, you know, a lot of these courses that are being taught in this uh, uh, B-I-H-E, yeah, a lot of the courses are actually mm. in cyberspace, are online, mm. you know. I have taught a couple of classes, I mean, a couple of students myself, via Internet. So in Iran, people are doing the exact same thing. The young people are really ahead. They understand each other and, you know, they understand us. Uh, one thing that the Iranian government doesn't really understand is that they can't do anything about this. The Baha'i faith is going to be the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i is going to get their rights as human beings in their country, whether they like it or not, it's an exciting time. It's a very exciting time, Warren. And this whole education under fire is just the beginning of it. And, you know, I have this dream. I think that maybe this whole distributed, organically grown Baha'i institution of higher learning, uh, maybe it will turn out to be the pattern and the nucleus of, the, of, of future universities. Who knows? In fact, several major, major universities in the United States are now recognizing and they're accepting the credits from these universities. Very well-known universities. I've heard of Stanford. The, I don't know in which department. Yeah. So it's a very exciting time. Well, Mona, thank you so much for sharing your story and the plight of the Baha'is in Iran. Thank you very much, Warren. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mona Mahmoudi. 
a Baha'i who immigrated from Iran and lost both her parents as a result of the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. You can learn more about the movement Education Under Fire by going to educationunderfire.com. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Please excuse me if I rejoice Cause it was years ago Back when I decided to save a place inside my heart Where Baha'u'llah's resided And my family all around the world will watch and pray So I am not alone Will I surrender? Not today They can take my life away My life away This love will never change This love will never change They can take my rights uh, away Yeah, I'll grow stronger Every day You can take my life away This love will never change No, my love will never change They can take my rights away Yeah, I'll grow stronger Every day Yeah. It's my right to an education My right to the living I'm making And yet they keep taking away from me My material possessions have been ruined and put to pieces My spirit remains a whole My attachment thus decreases Still in the state though times have changed They haven't changed enough The friends must hide, obey, pray to avoid themselves handcuffed Battles change but sacrifice remains the same This is my devotion that ignites my inner flame They can take my life Take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day.
This song is about a girl named Mona. She was executed at the age of 16. And until the last moment, she stood strong in the face of oppression. Innocent people torn from their homes. What is this prejudice? What is this hatred? Carried in sacks and beat to the bone. How is this violence meant to be sacred? Yeah, we all gotta sacrifice, but their souls carry on in the afterlife. Their souls carry on in the afterlife. Their souls carry on in the afterlife. And among these Baha'is arose one girl. Had one dream just to change the world. They said, What could she do? Cause she's only 16. She could recognize truth that nobody had seen. She could change the world one soul at a time. Where is her freedom? A gift divine. She said, Reunion is life, separation is death. That's what I I gotta say to my last breath Go ahead, take me, take me home But don't take my family, take me alone Alright, go ahead, take us, take us all I'm gonna kiss the rope, I'm gonna raise the call She said Just take my soul away Can you free me from these chains? God, where have you She said freedom is the most brilliant word that exists in the whole world. So why am I not free to exist in this community? I got dreams of liberty, but when I open up my eyes, all I see is tyranny. And I swear by the red in my veins that there is no love. I can only see pain. I can only see the blood that'll drip like rain. Only see the villains that are killing with no shame. And the filling up the cemetery with all of my friends not willing to stop. They go again and again. They're coming real fast and they're coming to attack. I'll sit right here, just breathe and relax. Think fast, it'll make me smile. Gotta close my eyes, pray for a while. Cause reunion is life, separation is death. That's what I gotta say to my last breath go ahead take me take me home but don't take my family take me alone all right go ahead take us take us all i'm gonna kiss the rope i'm gonna raise the call and i'm ready to go so please set me free please break these chains lord when will it be just take my soul away can you free me from these chains Where have you gone? Let me share with you my pain
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.